Hello again, everybody. John Porteous here for the Lovells Township Historical Society, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. Hey, welcome back. I uh, hope you enjoyed our episode with Peter. This week, Richard and I are going to sit down with a uh, friend and North Branch neighbor of ours, Dave Jankowski. Um, Dave's a rod maker, fly tire. He's been a jet air, airplane uh, pilot, fighter pilot, um, and has recently authored a new book, The Venerable Fly Tires. So sit back and relax and enjoy. We're going to uh, chat with Dave, hear some funny stories, and uh, uh, hopefully motivate you to uh, go investigate his new book. So here we have it. Um, enjoy. Welcome, Dave. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, John. Good morning. The, um, thanks for joining us. Uh, as always, I, I think we'll just lead with the Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you came up, how you got into fly fishing, that sort of thing. Okay. I was born in Wisconsin, raised in Wisconsin, uh, on a lake, Green Lake, probably Wisconsin's nicest, uh, into fishing and outdoor sports uh, as a child. I went to the United States Air Force Academy when I graduated high school, Uh, four years there, a year of pilot training, a year of uh, F-4 upgrade expecting to go to Vietnam at the end of that this would have been 1971-72 at the time uh, the war ended uh, pay, uh, the uh, prisoners were uh, repatriated about uh, the time I finished my F4 upgrade so instead of going to uh, Southeast Asia I ended up going to the uh, United Kingdom instead and participated uh, in the Cold War uh, sat nuclear alert there with targets in the East Bloc countries, uh, four years in England and a year at Keflavik, Iceland. Uh, there we were an air-to-air squadron, intercepted Russian bears on their way from Romance to Cuba and back. Uh, in the course of the year there, I think I had intercepted some 13 oh, bears wow. on different occasions. Just uh, if I may, sure. I, I don't want to cut you short and I don't want to derail you, but... What is an experience like that like? I mean, can't imagine a whole lot of our listeners uh, really know what that means. <laughs> well, the Russian bear bomber had been around a long time. It's probably equivalent to the B-52, essentially. Although they made it in a lot of variants, and they used it, the ones that we saw, primarily as anti-submarine warfare aircraft. They would drop sonar buoys out in the North Sea and track... U.S. submarines, okay. essentially, and uh, they were, if they'd have filed a flight plan over the island of Iceland, we wouldn't have intercepted them, but they didn't, and so it was kind of a cat and mouse Cold War game to... Uh, well, when, when you say intercept, would it, do you go up and wave to the guy in the other yeah, plane? Yeah, exactly or? that. Well, okay. Go up and give him the finger. That's, well, defense if he waves back. Essentially, you were scrambled off of alert. You flew out into the North Atlantic. Uh, you were vectored onto the airplane by ground radar. And uh, once you got on the aircraft, we typically were, were armed, um, heat seeking and radar missiles. And uh, we were always in a two ship. So typically you left one airplane about a mile in trail of the Bear Bomber. The other aircraft went up and flew on its wing. Uh, it was an intel gathering mission as much as anything. The back F-4's uh, 
two-person aircraft pilot in front, Wizzo weapon systems operator in the back. He had a special fancy can camera, uh, took a lot of pictures of the bears, uh, tracking things like, you know, different things hanging off the airplane okay. and so on, ports and all of that to try to learn Radar about. Radar rays, yeah. antenna did rays. You, uh, did you ever talk to the other the Russian pilots? No, we were never on frequency with them. But I'll tell you one experience. I've been sitting up there on his wing, and usually it was at night, but not always. But I remember this particular occasion, uh, not from the cockpit so much, but some little porthole over the wing, I see this bottle held up. Well, I could tell by the waist in it and the shape of it that this is a Coca-Cola bottle. And surely this guy is showing me, look, Yankee, I got a Coca-Cola too. And the next thing I know, up comes the full Playboy centerfold <laughs> spread held up in the window. Yeah, now, it was, a, it was a couple years old, don't ask me how I know that, but um, and so he's showing me that and grinning at that. You know. And an immediate thought that I had was these people in this airplane, my enemy, are just like us. Are just the same goofy humans They're we the are. the same group. <laughs> he grew up in some little small town in Siberia or outside of Moscow or something, wanted to be an air crew member like I did and was. And I thought, you know, I got more in common with this guy than I do with the dentist down the street or the person auditing my taxes or, or mm -hmm. whatever, and I think I like him better, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, he's got the wrong uniform on. Yeah, and this is the guy, who, if push comes to shove and we go to war with these people, he's a, that's in the airplane i got to shoot down. Yeah. Yeah. Like everybody would have a plan to kill him. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Trust but verify or no, no. <laughs> whatever. Um, well, cool, and again, I didn't mean to derail you, but the whole concept of an intercept is kind of fascinating to me but so so you did the f4 thing you're tailing out at the end of uh vietnam mm -hmm. you've completed your upgrade and okay after iceland um or after i came back to the states i was assigned to a army ranger battalion in uh, fort lewis washington i was their forward air controller air liaison officer mm -hmm. so i essentially advised the um battalion commander uh, how he could use air power. <laughs> I, was gonna, you, I ordered you could it. Benefit yeah. from the air support. That's right. <laughs> I would order it. When it arrived, I controlled it. Oh, okay. I helped was to that, get to the target. Get a DAS operation. Direct air support. Yeah. Center. Yeah. No. Yeah, okay. And involved uh, with a couple of those. Yeah, you probably did that. <laughs> I did that in Europe too when I was in England. Uh, we would go over to meet up with army units and, and yeah, we go. control close air there too. Fido. Fighter duty officer? Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, I did that for about a year, and then I left the Air Force. I went to uh, Hughes Air West mm. uh, as a, a commercial pilot job. That lasted about a year for me. I got furloughed, um, ended up going back in the Air Force, uh, taught pilot training in uh, um, Valdosta, well, not that was where I went through pilot training. I taught pilot training at Vance Air Force Base in Enid, Oklahoma. Wow. Uh, yeah, did that for four years. Oklahoma. There you go. Thriving area. <laughs> did that for four years and then uh, got out again, transferred to the Michigan Air National Guard, 
in F-4s, uh, and back to the airlines with, uh, at that time, Republic Airlines, who had purchased Hughes Air West. So I had a, two jobs, airline pilot uh, four or five days a week, guard pilot another one or two days a week. So pretty busy fella at that time. I didn't trust the airlines enough to not continue to, to with them. I had 11 ahead. years of military credit at that time anyway. So for the next 10 years, essentially, I took one day off a week and uh, flew those two jobs. Um, a lot of credit to my wife who was home raising four daughters. Um, I was home a lot. Uh, I could do the guard job after they left for school and get back before they got home for school, so they didn't really know okay. Dad was doing that job much. Um, uh, like I said, did that for 10 years and uh, retired from the Guard at that point, stayed on with the airlines, and uh, at 58 I retired from the airlines. Somewhere mm -hmm. along the way when the kids were grown up and out of the house, I got interested in uh, fly fishing. We had a little pond in our backyard full of bass and bluegill, and uh, I would tie some pretty crude flies, but that was good enough for bass and bluegill, and go out so there. And you didn't get fishing. to fly fish when you were in Keflavik or uh, Iceland? No, unfortunately. <laughs> you weren't doing it then, okay. There were wonderful opportunities then. Okay. I, I did a little spin fishing there. I wasn't, I hadn't learned about fly fishing yet. Caught some Arctic uh, uh, char and, and whatnot. Um, but no, I wasn't fly fishing then. Nah. Well, you, you caught up to it. That's good then. Yeah. You're here now. I'm here now. I'm here now. <laughs> big, big time. Big time. Yeah. Yeah, in a big way. Really here. In oh. a big way. So, uh, you started started tying and started wrangling a rod. Started tying. Uh, my good friend Rod Jenkins, who's the uh, illustrator in the book The Venerable Fly Tires, um, we met. Uh, actually at the Portland Guard. He was in the Portland unit when I was looking for a guard job before I found Portland, the Michigan Guard. Portland, Maine? Portland uh, Oregon. Oregon. Okay. Oh, wow. And, but we were also at the airline together. And okay. we never flew together at the airline because we were too close in seniority. So we were both first officers at the same time and then both captains at the same time oh, okay. and so on. So well, we never flew together there. Rod flew a tanker in active duty. Right? No, Rod flew F-101s. Oh, really? I thought he was no. a tanker guy. He flew the Voodoo. And uh, anyway, uh, <clears throat> he was big into fly fishing, so I was just learning, and so I followed him along, and he became my mentor, and he's the character in the book called The Fishmaster. Okay. Um, a little bit about that. Uh, my book, The Venerable Fly Tires, is a, about two dozen short stories of a group of guys that fly tie together uh, in a club. We fly fish together. Our home waters would be Michigan's Al Sabo River and uh, Yellowstone National Park. We made a trip okay. out to Yellowstone almost every year for about 20 years. So we knew the park pretty well, as, as well as fishing the Al Sabo. Um, we started using tactical call signs, essentially, and you know, familiar, <laughs> you're familiar with... Uh, <laughs> The top, the gun, top gun movie. Type of, uh, You've yeah. got Maverick and Goose, and nobody can tell you their real names. You know, Pete Mitchell, and I forget who, the, what Goose is. Brad something, Bradshaw. Anyway, uh, at that time, the Air Force was using uh, 
squadron call signs that kind of meant nothing. I, I'm just thinking of a couple. One was trait, one was spong. I mean, they were goofy words, and then you put numbers behind them, and that was your call sign. And after watching the Top Gun movie and seeing the successful recruiting effort that it did for the Navy, um, the Air Force didn't want to miss out on a good thing, so we decided that we would use tactical call signs too. And a, a tactical call sign isn't much more than a, a nickname, really. Um, and there's some really creative ones out there. Now, mine was Archer. And the reason it was Archer was when we started to go and say, okay, we got to use technical call signs, I thought, well, I don't want anybody to pick one for me. Um, I'd had a recent near miss with Lake Huron uh, <gasps> flying, and I would have been gyro, you know, so I don't want to be gyro. Did you almost gyro. have an intimate yeah. relationship? Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a spatial disorientation episode. Um, anyway, uh, so I got the dictionary out, and I started looking for things started with a found archer and i thought okay that sounds like somebody that can shoot uh, was born in december so it's like sagittarius uh i'll use archer and uh had a, and i was getting tired of the whole drill if i gotten tired earlier i'd have probably been aardvark but uh <laughs> anyway arch i chose archer it stuck and i got to be that but you know just thinking of, of some others uh you know if you're, we had a guy whose last name was Smart, his technical call sign was not so. You know, and, uh, <laughs> there were guys like Vomit and Throwback, and <laughs> for a guy that looked a little more Neanderthal than most of the rest of us. Okay. Uh, uh, and so, and they weren't kind. They were cruel. You know, many of them. But you know, the ego of a fighter pilot can handle cruel names. So okay. we can <laughs> move on with that. Rod Jenkins was a bald eagle. Okay. His, his rather large size head was bald, and uh, so he, he picked that himself, and we went on there. So we used tactical call signs in our fly tying group. We often had carried little radios uh, when we fished, so we could call each other, but where are you? Are you catching anything Oh, there? a little family radio yeah, type thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And so, Those are you cool. know, it was you know, hard work to, you know, archer to bald eagle, you know. Yeah. I need you to witness my 20-inch fish here. <laughs> so stuff like that. I like that. I like that. Jake and I used those uh, when we were fishing out west last year, you know, so mm -hmm. you get a, you know, a little more separation than you might be able to holler at. It, it's real neat to just be right. able to reach down to the uh, your shoulder strap on your right. hand. And Absolutely. Keep, yeah, and right. cell phones often don't work out there, mm -hmm. so you, you can't do that. <laughs> no. no, not in a lot of good spots they don't. That's right. Not where you go. <laughs> That's not where you want to be. Right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, so you've got this group of guys, this merry band of tires and anglers, and you've got your call signs, and you're out doing just, you maintain a cabin up here, don't you, on the north? I have a cabin on the north branch just below Kellogg Bridge, Okay. Yes. So do you guys use that as a base camp, or...? Yes. When, when we were fishing the Osable uh, River Shed? Yeah, absolutely. We used to stay at, at Gates. Okay. And then when I bought the cabin in 2014, we kind of moved our fish oh, camp okay. operation to you. the cabin. And the cabin has two bedrooms and a bunkhouse, essentially. So six guys can stay there. Um, and it, it works really well for us. Uh, good water in front of us. Great we, we got water. Beautiful. <laughs> 
not, ground not that we're going to tell anybody where no, you are. No. But, yeah. Beautiful ground, <laughs> ground drake water, especially maybe a night or two of hex. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, uh, it, it's not as skinny as above no. Kellogg Bridge. No. So there's some big fish in there too. And, and typically we'll have that experience during brown drake and, and maybe a little bit of hex. Um, but any other time too, good streamer water, it's, it's, it's really nice water. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. The, um, one of the other things that I think you've been involved with, you know, from a, a hobby turned into yet another big deal, uh, is the bamboo rod making. And right. So, I mean, not only is it, yeah, it's cool to do your own rod, but you guys have evolved that into... Well, Dave's extended it out to, uh, you know, he's on the board at Grey Rock, and he's also the head uh, instructor for Bamboo Bend, which is no small feat. Well, uh, want to talk about that? Sure. Uh, in the year 2000, Bald Eagle and I got involved in making bamboo fly rods. He'd wanted to do that for quite a while, and we'd been searching all over the country. I mean, as airline pilots, we'd go anywhere we want and do this. Um, <laughs> And we never really found one that quite worked for our schedules and, and whatnot. One day he called me and he says, hey, I found one in Michigan. It's, it's called the Genesis School of Rod Making. These two guys, uh, John Long and Ron Barch, have a program. Yeah, uh, I took that class with John, yeah. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> and uh, it's in uh, Nettie Bay, Michigan. And so we worked our schedules to have time off to be able to go and do that. And, I'd have to say that's one of the most fun weeks I've ever spent in my life. Uh, we had a really good time, uh, two good instructors, or eight students. Uh, we just had a ball up there. Uh, the lodge was comfortable, the food was excellent. Uh, it's too bad that program didn't continue for more than a couple years like it did. Uh, so anyway, that was our start. Driving home from that, we got talking about it and decided that, hey, we got to make another one right away or we're not going to know how. That was pretty complicated. We took a lot of notes and... Repetition uh, this, makes perfect. Yeah, kind of before the day of the uh, cell phone photograph, but um, we took a lot of notes and we just decided we need to make another one fairly quickly. And uh, we also realized that we needed to make the equipment to make another fly rod because at that time it was pretty hard to come across ovens and planing forms and uh, binders and all that stuff that as I look around Richard's office here I see plenty of and my own workshop looks a lot like this. Um, yeah, we, we are broadcasting from a rod making yeah. shop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks Richard. And, and, uh, I waved. And, and you know what? Listeners, reach out to Richard and make a rod with him. It's a blast. <laughs> yes, it is. So anyway, well, that, that hooked us on making bamboo fly rods. And so we would, we churned out, oh, I don't know. I, rod has made more than I have. I got involved with building my own home somewhere along the line there. And I, I probably could have <laughs> made another a, hobby. I could have made on, a, come on, priorities. Man. Yeah, I could have <laughs> made a thousand fly rods in the amount of time I spent building a home. But uh, anyway, uh, we would continue making several a year for, for right up till now. Uh, somewhere along the way, uh, I discovered Bamboo Bend. I think I found out about it in the airport. I was commuting from uh, Traverse City, where I live, to Detroit to fly. And I only did that for about nine months, uh, my last nine months at the airlines. Um, prior to that, I lived in the Detroit metro area oh, where okay. I could just 
drive to work. Anyway, um, and as I go through the airport, I see a bunch of guys sitting around with fly rods. And they were all excited and talking, and they looked military-ish and stuff. And I just stopped and uh, chatted with them. And Which year did you come in? I thought you were with it from the beginning. I was there from the third year. Third year. Okay. I missed the first two years. I came in second or third. Yeah. Okay. And anyway, um, I got talking to them, found out that they were in Grayling, and some guy named Victor Edwards' house. Yep. And I didn't know who Victor Edwards was. I thought I knew most of the Grayling rod, you know, fly fishing mm -hmm. people, but mm -hmm. I didn't know mm -hmm. Victor. And uh, anyway, so at the next Gray Rock, the next bamboo rod gathering, um, I found Victor Edwards there. I went over and talked to him and told him I'd like to volunteer for that program. And uh, after he extensive vetting on Victor's <laughs> part, <laughs> who do you know, you know, Barch, uh, I'll talk to him, see what he thinks of you, sort of thing. Well, I got invited Does to the sniffing and checking. Yeah, and so <laughs> yeah. I, I did that for, I don't know, six, eight years maybe. And then about that time, Ron Barch was going to uh, retire from the program. He'd been there from the beginning. And he took me aside and he said, how'd, how'd you like to be lead instructor? I said, I don't know if I'm, I'm certainly not as qualified as you are, and I don't think I'm any more qualified than anybody else in the room. And he said, don't worry about that. He said, you're more organized than anybody else in the room. And, and I think that is part of my skill set is pretty good organization. And I can write a syllabus and do that sort of thing, because I had some practice of that in the military and so on. So that job fell to me, and uh, I've done it a couple years now. We missed two years with the COVID, but we're back again here a week in a week. Well, now, and when we say we're back again, meaning Bamboo Bend? Bamboo Bend. Okay. We'll, we'll start on May 7th. And again, for our listeners, who, who attends a Bamboo Bend and why? Okay, Bamboo Bend is a, is a program that Victor Edwards um, started for disabled military veterans. Excellent. And uh, we take eight a year now. We started with six. We expanded it to eight. We take eight veterans a year, bring them to levels, to the Grayling area, and uh, teach them how to make a bamboo fly rod. They're there for about eight days. They get four or five classroom days, a couple of days of guided fishing on the river. This year we're going to switch one of those days out because we had a little bit of trouble finding some guides since we hadn't done it for mm -hmm. two years. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to have a day of fly tying with a couple of the uh, local fly tying experts as oh, well. Oh, that's great. So I think that is great. And I, I, there's too many days early in May in the past where we've sent these guys out just freezing. Right. And so it's bad enough if you do it one day and you do it two days in a row, they start to lose enthusiasm on that second day. Yeah. So this way we can cherry pick the day a little bit uh, and the other day can be the, the fly tying day and I think they'll get a lot out of that. Sure. So we're not trying to short circuit the program at all, we're trying to make it better. Well it's another, it's a whole other dimension because you know, right. in as much as I kind of view the rod making thing as kind of a very zen, you know, focus right. experience. I, I, I feel fly times very similar that way. Yeah. Just kind yes. of, you're able to focus and kind of get rid of right. a lot of and, the clutter. Well, the, one of the unique things about Bamboo Bend, though, is when they leave, they have a rod that's finished, done. 
ready to go to the river. Well, and it's theirs. Yeah, so there's a lot of prep work up front in order to make that happen because finishing a bamboo rod in one week is, the, is there, an accomplishment. There, so. Yeah, and, and you guys are pretty modest, and you really set these guys up for success. The staging, the preparation that you do, the all the behind the curtain stuff ensures that outcome. That I mean, here's a, a guy, maybe a gal, that's able to come in, learn, learn, you know, what's fairly technical craft, <laughs> right, right, and and convert that into a tangible object that they can walk away with and use for the rest of their lives. Right, right. <laughs> maybe well, pass to a kid or something. Right. <laughs> these guys come out of the project healing water. Uh, they're vetted through them, and most, some of them, most of them have experience with rod building. Uh, you know, if you make graphite or plastic rods, you're a builder. If you make bamboo rods, you're a rod maker because you're not just you. gluing okay. stuff on a stick. Uh, <laughs> but there's a lot of upfront work and a lot of uh, a lot of prep. I mean, it's. Do you, are it's you guys a, doing there's the? There's a lot uh, of long days, and are you planning down a lot of stuff to give them a kind of a head start that way? Yeah, we are. Um, we prep uh, bamboo ben, or bamboo. We we take bamboo combs, we split them, we uh, taper them, and we get them about twenty, thirty thousandths over the final taper of the rod. Okay. Simply because for two reasons really. One is you'd have to add another day to the program if they had to plane the whole thing. Right. And secondly, these are disabled veterans. So many of them have some sort of handicap, physical handicap. And this is where we pause for the air compressor to recharge. Sorry, air compressor kicked on. Yeah, one of the cool things about doing a broadcast in a fly shop is that sometimes tools in a fly shop become functional. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was saying, these are disabled veterans who... Um, Many of them have PTSD. I think that goes with the nature of, of what they've been through. But also, uh, many of them also have some sort of physical problem as well. And maybe it's nothing more than that they can't stand on their feet for long periods of time or, or whatnot. Um, some do have uh, issues with limbs and, and stuff that I don't think we've ever had anybody that had anything artificial necessarily. But uh, but they have restricted motion, sure. and, and repetitive motion like planting a bamboo rod would really hey, it's hard tire them. <laughs> it up. is yeah. hard work. Well, yeah. the upfront yeah. work just takes a lot of uh, repetitive right. stuff on. If you if you've straightened a rod strip, you've straightened a rod strip, yeah. and doing it twelve times is probably not going to teach you a lot more than doing it once. Right, yeah. right, and they do experience everything. They get the whole course. They get to do everything. Every step of the way, you know, right up to the end of a finished fly rod. It's just that they don't do all of the work necessarily on that. Um, and no one's ever complained about that either. I, I think, yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't plan enough. After they do it once, they're not sad <laughs> yeah. not to have done it all. And, you know, do they go home learning, knowing how to make a bamboo fly rod? Well, yes. But they'd have to do like Rod Jenkins and I did, make another one fairly soon fairly and make quick. the tools. You well, know? you've got the concept layer. You've got the layer. concept. You've got a chance to do it all. You, you saw it all. Um, you know, we send home a, a, a pretty well-written 
guide how to to how to <laughs> and we've had some people that's the only rod that they made and that's fine and we've had others go on and make quite a few well, rods. Yes, one of our graduates is or the guys that came out of this program is working in for uh, Twin Bridges, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Working for whom? Uh, what, Sweetwater. Sweetwater Rock. Oh Company. wow. Yeah. Holy so, smokes. Let's or was is. But that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. But the purpose. Are, you mean sweet water or sweet grass? <laughs> sweet, sweet grass. grass. Sweet grass. Sweet grass. Glen Bracken, the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a huge deal. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. But but the real purpose of the program isn't so much they make a bamboo fly rod. It's that it's the healing involved. I mean that's what Project Healing Waters is all about. Well, and you've got your Healing that's Waters it. cap on, so I was hoping yeah. maybe you'd talk about that a little bit too. <laughs> Well, okay, Project Healing Waters is a program that started about 10 years ago by a, a Navy, retired Navy um, veteran named uh, Ed Nicholson. Uh, he was a fly fisherman himself. He was stationed on the East Coast. He was getting some medical help himself with something he had going on. And he saw all these guys coming back from Desert Storm and... and uh, or other excursions, Iraq, Afghanistan. And so he was looking for a program that, that he thought would help them heal. And he thought fly fishing was the perfect program for that. It gives them something to do with their hands, keeps them busy, something to do with their minds. Um, it gets them out on a river. It, it gets them connected to other people. And so he started Project Healing Waters Fly Fishing. Uh, there's about 220, 230 individual programs in the country all linked to Project Healing Waters National. Uh, the program itself is, uh, all the money goes to the vets. There's very low overhead. There's maybe 11 or 12 people that, that actually work at La Plata, Maryland, where the headquarters is, oh, okay. and they're the only paid people in in the program. And they, quite honestly, dealing with them, they could use more. So it isn't like this thing is fat overhead. It's not. Right. Um, and then as it comes on down to each one of the individual programs, uh, and I don't know why they don't call those chapters, but they don't. They call. Okay, I was just going to ask. I know it's it's, <laughs> okay. con it's confusing. It's confusing. Um, I helped start. After seeing these people go through Bamboo Bend and finding out where they came from, I thought this is a great program in itself. So I helped start the Traverse City Project Healing Waters program, and I'm on, on the board of that there. In fact, just another plug on my book, 20% of the proceeds from my book go to Project Healing Water. That's amazing. And That's the awesome. book will be available this week at the opener. That is, that is 100%. Opener and at, well, to the best of my knowledge, and Dave, you tell me, but this book will be available all season long at the museum. Yes. Uh, and, and, of course, for those of you that are not local or, you know, visiting the area, uh, perhaps well, enlighten yeah. folks how... And then then I want to talk about the books more, too. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's uh, if you go on Dave Jankowski, that's one word, DaveJankowski.com, you can 
read more about my book and buy it from Ooh, that wow. website. You're on Amazon. And I'm also it, right? on Amazon. Okay. But you can give me the money or you can send Jeff Bezos into space. It's your choice. We, we would, let's let's <laughs> send you into space. All right. All right. <laughs> give Dave the money. Yeah. 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 And all I'm trying to do is recover the cost of publication and send some money to... Well, um, and, and there's the, there's the deal. Water. I mean, folks that are listening... Um, <laughs> Clearly, from our conversation so far, Dave's done a lot of really good things and is a very big person about pushing it forward. But he's also self-funded this book. This is a self-published book, and so um, which is because nobody would publish it for me, basically. Short-sighted. Short-sighted. No, I'm not going to believe that. It's just easier. It's it got it out there. You're doing. You're you're funding an amazing cause. You're you're offering your time to wonderful things. Um, and, and in the middle of all these activities that you're doing, you've taken time to capture all these stories and memories and fun events and, and put them in a book. <laughs> so wh why don't you, I don't want to shortstop Healing Waters anymore. Um, do, if, if somebody were to know somebody that wanted to become involved, um, or have a friend that might be a good uh, potential person to participate in Healing Waters. Is it Healing Waters, do a Google search and right. figure it yeah, out? Yeah, there's a website. Um, if, if you is, just, is there some hierarchical stuff so that regardless of where you are, you right. can figure you, it you'd, out? You'd get on their main webpage and you could find out the different, from there you can see what organization, what program okay. is nearest to you. Okay. And there's there contact information for that program. So. And certainly if you're in the northern Michigan, Traverse City area, um, we'd love to have you contact us. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're looking to grow and uh, serve more veterans and if we have too many we'll, we'll just branch off another program and there'll be there be a grilling program there or, we go. or whatever um, so that's not an issue uh, and this is a great place to fly fish as we all know oh, so and there's got to be and there's a lot of vets here so yep. this well, is a excellent. good program most of the instructors are veterans and right I enjoy that I like to talk to the guys and a couple years ago one of the guys that worked with me is he actually worked for the same agency that I retired from was DOD, and we knew and hated a lot of the same people. <laughs> so you, know, you can develop a uh, rapport with these guys. So, uh. so you were you were getting to the question of how did this book come to be? Yes. And the short answer to that: this is a COVID story. Um, okay. I probably wrote the. The first story in here, which isn't the first one in the book, but the first story I wrote was called. Uh, the fish wagon. Um, at that time, I had a slide-in camper in my pickup truck that I used to go f drive up to Canoe Harbor or okay. um, wherever up here. Uh, Bald Eagle and I camped a lot on the North Branch and, and fished that as well. Uh, so that was probably the first story. Um, and then maybe Dead Drift was the second and so on. But And I probably wrote the fish wagon 20 years ago. I mean, this. I, I started writing these stories kind of early. Okay. Um, they were just fun stories of things that happened. And, you know, we all have those stories. It's just a question of, you know, I've always been a journalist, you know, or I journal things and, and stuff. So I knew I had these stories and, and a lot of 
details about them. And so, uh, 2021, sitting in my cabin uh, alone, um, I pulled out I had the, the maybe the 10, 12 stories I had at that time that I'd mm -hmm. written over the course of years, and I read them out loud. And uh, now, I know when I tie a flywheel. I know when I cast a flywheel. I can't make that same determ determination about my writing. I think that's a really hard thing to self-evaluate. Maybe if you're a longtime writer, an experienced writer, and you've had a lot of critique and fame and whatnot, that's different. Mm -hmm. But at this point in, in my writing, I can't make that determination. I know what I work on. I work hard on first sentences. I think that the secret to writing is pimping people to read more. It, it, it's hooking them. It's saying, okay, you read that first sentence and you say, well, what's this about or where's this taking me? You know, I want to um, know more. I want to know more. And so they read on. And then I pay a lot, I pay a lot of attention to the last sentence or paragraph. I try to hook it back to the beginning of mm -hmm. the story, maybe to the title, maybe to the first sentence, uh, but clearly it has to end the story. It, it has to definitely de make an ending. You don't read that and think, well, wait, there's more. No, there isn't. I don't know. You know, you should know. Bang. That's the ending of the story. So I pay a lot of attention to that stuff. I try to put um, descriptive things in there without overdoing it. I want you to see what I'm writing about. Mm -hmm. I want you to hear what I'm writing about. I want you to feel it. Uh, maybe there's some emotion there. I want you to feel that. So that's what I, the effort I make to, to writing. Um, and sometimes well, those, I, those are all the things that are key to having readers enjoy your stories. Well, I think so. <laughs> yeah. and, and I know those are the things, you don't become a writer without reading a lot, and I know those are the things that, that I've always looked for mm -hmm. in stories too. So, so I read those 10 or 12 stories out loud in the cabin. I thought to myself, as much as I could, I think these are pretty good stories. They say what I want to say. I, I, I feel like I've done the best I can do at this point. And I thought, I ought to write more and do something with this. So I started that week, weekend that I was there, I wrote a couple more stories. And I'd had a conversation with Jerry Dennis, who sure. most of you listeners probably know. Jerry is a Traverse City writer. He's written a lot of Great Lake-type stories. He's written some good fly fishing stories. Um, he's Can a, you read stories? He's, he's an excellent story writer. And... Uh, I'd had a conversation, and I know Jerry personally, and he's, he stayed at my cabin. And I'd asked him a while back, I said, Jerry, what are you working on now? And he told me. He said, what I'm really looking for, Dave, is to mentor young writers. And so I just kind of filed that away. And then after this visit at the cabin, I immediately called Jerry. And I said, hey, Jerry, you still want to mentor young writers? I said, how about an old guy that's a new writer? Would you take me on? And he said, yeah, Dave, I'd love to do that. So Neat. I would. I sent him my first story. That's a, and that's it, a hell of a person to have in your corner. Well, it is a hell of a person <laughs> to have in, in your corner. And, um, I mean, it, it's in the course of running all my stories past Jerry, it was like a master's course in learning to write, really. Sure. Um, I wasn't looking for grammar and spelling corrections. Uh, that certainly came. 
but um, I was looking for style. I went, you know, Jerry, does this work? Why doesn't it work? You know, is there too much here? Not enough here? You know, should I rearrange the order of my stories and stuff like that? And so I'd get the story back, I'd rewrite it based on some of the things that he said, and then I'd rewrite the next story a little mm -hmm. bit based on what he said about the first one, and I'd send that to Jerry. And then I would get that back from him, and I'd go through the same process. He's just doing feedback loops. Yeah, instant feedback loops. That's and awesome. th through the course of 24 stories and nine essays, I can't definitively say I'm a better writer, but I do know how to please Jerry Dennis. So, and that, end of, and that ain't of nothing. <laughs> well, that's not insignificant. No. That is not insignificant. That's pretty cool. The, um, so, um, you, <laughs> still kind of blown away that that's your mentor, but, uh, <laughs> it's, what, what's next? What, what happens, um, I know, you, I know you're actively promoting, uh, your book. You were kind enough to come and speak at our, hot stove series over the winter um, and you've obviously been kind enough to join us for our podcast what what, what else is involved I mean this can't be insignificant <laughs> this well, is this got to be kind of a big thing and a, and a work of passion for you well it is a big thing I mean to I've always loved books I much prefer books to reading something online or whatever <laughs> I like holding the book in my hand I like the visual appearance of the book and I'm really really pleased with the work that Mission Point Press did in designing the cover and well, I mean, organizing it and all of that. Aesthetically, it is a sharp-looking book. And and for our listeners, very well illustrated. Um, and, you know, most importantly, some great stories. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, and so People are going to enjoy this. What's next? Everybody knows, well, maybe everybody doesn't know. If you don't, there's three steps in a book. I mean, step one is writing it. Step two is publishing it, and step three is marketing it. Now, I did carry the... Step four is movie rights. It's movie rights. That's, <laughs> that could be true. Um, the next movie. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I'm on step three now. Uh, I'm trying to market it. I'm, I, don't, I did not write this as a commercial endeavor. I wrote it more as a tribute to the venerable fly tires, the guys I've fly fish and hunt with your pals all those years my <laughs> pals and so that in essence is completed um but at the same time you know talking about publication i sent this book probably to 30 different publishers around the country the ones you'd expect lions press and you know frank amato in portland and all of these and most of them you don't even hear back from they don't even bother to write to you and reject it um, I, I did have one guy call me and say, Dave, I, I am calling to apologize for not publishing your book. And I said, well, that's interesting. But yeah. he, said, he said, if I'd have gotten this book 20 years ago, I'd have jumped on it, published it, and we'd have sold a lot of copies. He said, I love your book. I said, but the, the 20 people, 20, the people we would have sold it to 20 years ago, are all half of them are dead. And the next generation hasn't started reading stories like this. Haven't started yet. to embrace. Yeah, he said. So really, I'm not willing to take the risk of publishing it. So I had to find a self-publisher, and and really many authors just naturally do that because there's probably more money in self-publishing. You get a much larger portion 
of the book's cost if you sell it directly yourself than you would if, if you take a publisher's royalty. Okay. So, um, but I'm doing it by default, really, and and it costs me. You know, it's about ten grand, maybe a little more, to publish a book. Well, that's not so insignificant. It's, it's not insignificant, and I'd I'd like to recover that cost. Well, that's and especially really, when you're pushing it, you know, when you're pushing proceeds from this effort to help those less fortunate, right. you know, in that regard, and and become acquainted with our right. this part of the world. That's yeah. And I'm not waiting until um, I recover the cost of publication to do that. I'm doing it book by book. Yeah. They get 20% yeah. of the proceeds book by book that's right exciting. now. That's, Every month I write a check. Well, that's that, impactful. Yeah. <laughs> that's well, I hope impactful. so because yeah. I, what I'm really trying to show, why is this a good book for that? Because it shows the kind of stories, the kind of adventures, the kind of friendships that you can have in fly fishing. Yeah, what, what happens when you stumble into the world of fly fishing? Well, right. Well, wow, there's a fraternity of really neat people. Yes, there are. <laughs> that you may or may no. not otherwise meet. That's <laughs> exactly right. It's really cool. I know my life's a lot better from, you know, having been exposed and meeted, met with all of you guys. It's wonderful, and I'm <laughs> super excited to, to see you do this. And, well, and for our listeners, it's really good read. This is... You know, just not an effort at raising money. This is, this is entertainment. This is good. Well, thank you. Um, good fun. Now, I guess one other loop, and we kind of alluded to it earlier, and and Richard's really involved in this. So, um, as you both are, but we we've got Greywalk coming up here pretty soon. Yeah, Greyrock with the rod gatherings. Greyrock's one of them we do here in. The Grayling area was several different locations over the years. Uh, we, uh, you know, we were down a couple of years for COVID. And now we're going to start again this year. So, uh, but that's a, uh, you know, it's a meeting for rod makers basically, and we. You're just kind of a live forum. Just kind of sh shoot the <laughs> shit, you know, and talk <laughs> well, about rod making and go on. As esoteric and academic debate over. Um, very high, feral, very high level. Fitting uh, and <laughs> And glues and varnishes and uh, oh yeah exactly yeah yeah we can go on for about a week about which, which glue to use <laughs> glue or and often do you know this this varnish doesn't quite smell right <laughs> it can't be good you know and a plug there you know if you're a young young person by young I mean somebody under seventy um, just looking at the at the age that we have at at Gray Rock. Um, we're not attracting young people much anymore, and uh, we'd like to. And I'd have to say this about rod making. Um, this is a fairly complex craft. It's essentially uh, woodworking to machinist standards, so thousands of an inch. But I would say I'd been making rods maybe just two or three years before I found myself treated like an equal. And people wanting asking me what glue I used or how did I do that or that sort of thing. So it, it's a beautiful craft that you can get involved in and be recognized as a full-fledged member very quickly by a lot of neat people. And I, I just found that 
camaraderie and that association to be fantastic. Well, and you know, you, you bring up a great point there, Dave. Um, the sport has an aging demographic. Hunting and fishing nationally are are suffering in this in this regard. Fathers aren't passing it to their sons as as they used to. I mean, I fall into that camp. Um, I had to come onto it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fortunate enough now that my my children and their their spouses enjoy it, and you know we're all you know loving it. But for those of you listening, if there are young people in your lives that maybe aren't involved with this, by all means, God, take kid fishing. Yeah. <laughs> Just for yeah. a day. They may or may not like it, but but turn them on to it. You know, give them a chance. And and the the long term payoff is that maybe someday they'll end up crusty old curmudgeons like us. That's right. <laughs> Having fun and a lot of good experiences. There's so. something to look forward to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, all right. Well, Dave, you're the man. Thank you. Well, thank you. We're grateful for your time and for your contribution. And, um, again, listeners, um, DaveJanikowski.com, and that's J-A-N-K-O-W-S-K-I. Um, and... You know, if you're curious, uh, just uh, check the township webpage uh, on the Historical Society, and uh, we'll we'll link you to the to Dave's website. So, all right. So, how about that, Richard? Good job, Dave. We appreciate your uh, continued support. You've been a good friend of the Historical Society. Absolutely. Well, and just a good friend. Well, thank you, guys. <laughs> yeah, guys. Down. All right. So, until next time, as we always say, mind your backcast. Just like